0: you have to have a unique offering. If you don't have a unique offering, you're just going to get very average returns. And for the amount of work and effort, it's just not worth it. Like You're going to be better off just putting your money in index fund and letting it sit and ride and getting mailbox money from dividends.
1: What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Mucho Gracias, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. Welcome to part two of Mark Jenny's story. In part one, Mark Jenny talked about growing up homeless, dropping out of high school, and how he started 30 plus companies and sold over a billion dollars worth of products online. Today, we're going to be diving into Mark's life, creating luxury, amazing Airbnb properties and how he keeps these one-of-a-kind places completely booked up year-round, plus checklists. Seriously, head over to Mark's Twitter to check out these photos of these Airbnbs at Mark Jenny. that's M-A-R-K-J-E-N-N-E-Y. They are unreal, I gotta stay at it for one night. If you ever want to learn about competitive advantages, being unique, and developing amazing Airbnbs, which this inspired me in my own Airbnb, you're going to love this episode. Here's three gigantic things you're going to take away. One, how to always bring five-star consistency using a checklist, which I copied. Two, which property markets are no-goes and Mark's strategy for sourcing properties. And three, why Mark filters every life choice through a one through ten scale. You're going to find out. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more air nuggets along the way. Before we dive into the show... Hit me up on Twitter, at Noah Kagan. Send me a DM. I just want to know that you're listening. Tell me what you're doing, where you're at, how your day's going. I love hearing from you, at Noah Kagan on Twitter. Just holler at me. Number two, check out tidycal.com. This has become one of our most popular tools on AppSumo. I think it's actually number one. If you're paying for Calendly or another tool, this is $29 for life, or you can use it for free. There's insanely new features like mutual availability, where we'll automatically recommend times for you. You can do date polls. So for groups, not for dates, but for groups, if you want to have a set time, you can send it out and everyone can vote and you guys choose a time. Plus, it's super, super, super the simplest way for you to schedule meetings. I use it for customer calls and our podcast. That's tidycal.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener D.A. Butron. Sounds like a rave name. Call to action in every bite. See, I knew it was a raver. Hey, Rabbi Ken lose. keep up the good work. Hey, D.I. Boutron, you too. And thank every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want a shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review wherever you're listening to this show. I check every single one of them. So you, you sold RV share. you made enough money off passive income through savings accounts and some investments at some point. Why did you decide to start a luxury STR portfolio? I bought my first vacation
0: home in 2012. That was even before I started RV share. And it turned into a business. My wife and I bought a house in Scottsdale. We were living in Ohio. I really was not looking at like a business. I was looking at it like I loved Scottsdale, I loved the area, we vacationed out there, and then we just said, well, let's rent it out. It'll at least cover itself, it'll pay for itself. And the return ended up being really good. And so between that time and the time that I exited RV Share, I ended up having a total of three vacation rental properties. So I was already familiar with the asset class. I liked it from an investment standpoint and having some capital to invest. I thought, I'm going to treat this like a real business, bring on somebody to run it for me and go bigger and build really unique, creative experiences. And it was, I would say it was scary. It was a little scary starting this business because a lot of the stuff we've done, there's no comps. And so if you have 20 other properties and you know all the comps, you know how much revenue you're going to bring in from them, if it's going to be a good investment or a bad investment. But a lot of the stuff that we did, there was no comps. And even the stuff we do today, there's no comps to it. So each property I kind of go into, I'm like, I hope this works out. (laughs) Knock on wood, I hope it works out. But they've
1: all worked out. Luckily, they've all worked out and they've all done really well. Because it is an interesting thought, like, hey, I'm going to put in, I think you're saying like this property is two and a half million and you put in a one and a half million and you're hoping for a 10% return. It's also been saying a little bit to be like, all right, I need to make sure I'm renting for a thousand plus dollars a night minimum to cover the cost. Is that going to be sustainable? And there's nothing to show you it it is or it isn't, especially when you got started. Yeah. And and properties like this is even, I would say, I don't want to say
0: stressful, but there's more risk there because the holding cost alone on a property like this is significant, like ballpark does. We have a groundskeeper, $60,000 a year just for one person to maintain the grounds. And then you add taxes and insurance and everything else that's associated with your six figures and holding costs. You got to get over that. That's six figures if there's no debt. That's without any debt payments. So just the holding cost on this property alone is over $100,000 a year,
1: not even including like a mortgage. I think what's interesting with the Airbnb thing that you're doing versus everyone else is everyone knows about it. But you're playing a game that seems different and then you're winning. So how did you first identify the opportunity? And then I think the other thing that's interesting about your strategy is that you didn't just do it once, you've done it now almost 20 times. So maybe tell us about, a little about those two things.
0: Yeah, I have a more artistic strategy than a mathematical strategy with this business. I'm probably totally opposite from most real estate investors. Most people I know are looking at spreadsheets and doing pro formas and I'm doing back of the napkin. Here's how much it's gonna cost. Here's how much I think it can rent the place for. Here's how much the improvements are gonna cost. I think for me, it really just comes down to like building cool experiences. And I feel like if I build a cool experience and I like, stick within somewhat of a range of a budget, mm-hmm. that the return will be good. And that's how I've approached it. It's probably not the best way to approach it, but for me, it's worked. As all of our properties, they perform well. None of our active properties that are operating, do I regret buying or has the return been bad? But I don't really have a strategic mathematical way that I go about investing in these properties. It's really more gut feel than anything. Well, the
1: first one, you added like the pickleball court, you added like shuffleboard, outdoor bowling, and it worked really well. I think what a lot of investors do is, oh, this is cool, I'm making money, great. What's your thought process, and you're like, no, I'm going to get 20 of these?
0: My thesis on that property was buy a property that's a little bit outside of town for a small fraction of what it would cost in town, add the special amenities, and I should be able to get returns comparable or better than the properties in town that cost three times as much. And that played out. And yeah, it made a lot of sense. And I'm like, okay, let's keep doing this. Not all the properties were that exact strategy, buy outside of town, add amenities, and get in-town returns. But... We duplicated that. Yeah, we added the mini-golf and this, that, and the other, a bunch of amenities to a lot of properties, and for a little while, our properties were looking the same. Oh, that's a Mark Jenny property. He added all these things in the backyard. They're all one-acre properties in Scottsdale, and he's got X, Y, and Z amenities. But people started doing the same thing, and that's when we really transitioned to these more large estate properties that we're at today that are a lot harder to duplicate. I wanted properties that were not just going to perform well when I bought them and a year and two years, three years later. I wanted properties that were going to perform well five, 10, 15, 20 years later because even if you went 10, 15, 20 years down the road, you don't have a whole lot of them. Places like this is 15 acres in Southern California. There's not a whole lot of land available of this size to be able to do something like this. And so unique assets is really where I've transitioned to today of like, how can we buy or build something that no one else either can or will do? When I told you I'm going to build a house that looks like a baseball stadium, I'm not worried (laughs) about my neighbor building a house that looks like a baseball stadium. It's literally in the backyard, it's a baseball field, and the whole house is literally built out like a baseball stadium. The property we have in the middle of the state park, it's irreplaceable. No one's ever going to have a property in the middle of the state park. It's a one of one. So. I think that in the beginning, it was a hack. It was like, how could I be scrappy and have a, a hack that like, makes this property unique? And it was adding the mini golf and the pickleball and those things, but like those aren't difficult to do. Anyone can do those. And so that's why I don't really focus on doing just that anymore. I'm not trying to find the one acre parcel and plop as much in the backyard as I can. And I'm really looking for like places that are gonna be very hard to
1: replicate over the next five, 10, 20 years. Can we walk through the economics of this Airbnb? I think people would be curious, Like, how much does it cost to buy? How much does it cost for amenities? What do you target your returns at? What does it cost to run just at a high level? At the highest level, the metric
0: that I focus on is the unlevered yield. So let's take this property for example. So this property, let's just say around two and a half million acquisition, about a million and a half in upgrades, total capital into the property, four million. Assume there's no mortgage on that, whether there is or not. I just make the assumption for the calculations. And like the way I look at it is if there's no mortgage on any property, which that's not the case, but that's for my calculations. And then I want to see a 10% return. So if there was $4 million into this property, I want to see a net income on an annual basis of $400,000. That's really across the board on all of our properties. That's the number that's been the baseline. Now today's, that's not where I would baseline them today. That number would actually be a lot higher today because the cost of capital today is a lot more and interest rates are a lot higher. So my 10% baseline, that was the baseline before interest rates have risen recently. That's when your multifamily was selling at cap rates of four. So if you could get a 10% yield on something like this, there's a huge spread, it makes a lot more sense to invest in something like this versus multifamily or other assets. We haven't done any acquisitions for about a year, And that's just because we acquired so many properties and it was really more than our team could handle at this at one time. And so we're still working on some of those properties today and we want to get those properties completed and brought to life all the renovations done before we acquire anything new. So we will be acquiring building from scratch from the ground up and acquiring new properties, but we're just taking a little bit of time off on acquisitions. But that number is going to have to actually go up a lot
1: if interest rates stay where they're at today. One of the interesting things about it that's kind of a nuance is that anyone could have bought this place and put it on Airbnb, and they probably wouldn't get the same rate you're doing. And I think that's something I think about in business is everyone can buy real estate, so how do you win? And I love that you said, all right, let me do it for groups and athletes and I think politicians and celebrities and people that can afford a place like this and then create amenities and experience that is unique. I have an Airbnb, and I think I get maybe a 7% return or 5% return, and yeah, because it's the same thing everyone else is doing. And I think you mentioned when we were talking earlier today is that if you want to compete in Airbnb and you can't afford something like this, you can buy a really cheap apartment in a cool city, like maybe San Diego, Scottsdale, Austin, and then Instagram, it. I think is what you were saying. Make it super
0: unique, way over the top. I've seen some good examples of this. I want to say in Nashville, where somebody would have maybe a two-bedroom apartment, and they just go over the top for bachelorette theme. Pink kitchen cabinets, they make it look like Barbie's house. And the returns are just, they're way, way better. That type of property, you take the same unit, same square footage, average design, and maybe it gets $150 a night and has a 50% occupancy. But you take the Barbie version of that, same square footage, but just really different, unique aesthetic and design, and that might get $400 a night average, and that might have 75 or 80% occupancy. So really, all of our properties, I look at myself as a value-add person. Value-add, generally speaking, when it comes to real estate, is somebody who's like buying an apartment complex, it's in rough shape, they're gonna go in, they're gonna fix it up, they're gonna increase the rents, they've added value, and then the property's worth a lot more. Our deals are normally like, I'm going in, I'm buying a place, It's already a a really nice property. It could totally be rented out exactly how it is, but I'm going in and then dumping a whole bunch of more money and time and effort into making it even more spectacular and adding that value, doing those different things that the average person isn't doing. And I think that's really what has allowed us to have higher returns than probably average. Are there people who have better returns with us who do more average properties? Yeah, I'm sure there are, you know, but I think overall
1: we're in that top quartile of returns for this asset class. And then one thing that's really fascinating about this business is that you own almost 20 of these luxury short-term rentals with very unique experiences. It sounds like they're generating, based on my back of the envelope calculation, million dollars a month profit for yourself or some ballpark of that. But the craziest part is not even that. You work how much a week on this business? This is the crazy part? Not necessarily the money. How do you do that? They're not making a million dollars a month net
0: for me. So they're doing very well, but not quite there yet. So I have a great team. I have an awesome team. I've been very fortunate to build a team with amazing people and they run the day-to-day operations for me. I get to do all the fun stuff that I enjoy doing and I don't do anything else. I like looking at real estate. I've always loved real estate. Even before this business, I would find myself just looking at on Zillow all the time at cool houses. I get to source the properties if we're in acquisition mode. When we buy a property, I'll come up with the idea of, okay, here's my vision for the property. But then my team, they'll bring it to life. They're the ones who are flying around the country going to all our different properties, meeting with the contractors, working with our team members, working with the cleaners, working with the handyman. I've been super fortunate to be able to surround myself with really good people. Bill and Terry are my partners who run this business for me day to day. They're amazing. And because of them, really, my involvement is a half an hour a week to an hour a week call, and that's it. And so this business is really, for me, it's a passive business. It's not a passive business at all, but for me, it's a passive business because I've set the business up and built the business in that way, that I have awesome people who are able to not only operate the business, but help the business grow, improve processes, procedures,
1: and really optimize the business without my involvement. And then you're working on this business is generating almost a million dollars in that a month, but not there yet, which is still ridiculous numbers, but what are you looking at KPI-wise and what are you doing in that 30 minutes a week you're working on it? I just got to highlight, it's a really important point. You can turn an active business passive. And I think that's a great thing. Is people like, I can't be rich being a plumber. You can hire the people to do it. And guess what? They could be very happy running that. And so for you to run this business for 30 minutes a week, what are you looking at? And what are you talking about in those weekly calls?
0: Yeah, we're looking at KPIs, revenue, what kind of bookings, occupancy. A lot of the stuff we monitor is kind of year-over-year performance. How are individual properties doing year-over-year? How's overall revenue year-over-year? They'll give me a rundown on a property-level basis. I will get a written report every week. We do our calls on Monday. I'll get a Monday morning of our financial KPIs, occupancy, and then also just what's going on at each property. If there's anything substantial, stuff breaks, if we had a special guest, whatever happens to be going on a property level basis. And then I will review that real quick and then basically highlight anything that I want to discuss on the call. And then so we'll skip over 80% 80% of what's on there and dive into anything that is intriguing that I want to chat about of, hey, what's going on with this? And we'll just talk about it on a property level basis. But generally speaking, we don't do a deep dive in every property on a weekly basis. We keep it pretty high level. So how much is the portfolio of properties worth currently?
1: So the total portfolio is north of 50 million. And if we assumed your unlevered yield target of cash flow Maybe it's around $5 million a year in generations of net income, which is pretty cool. Not saying that's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yep. And then you're running that for 30 minutes a week. One thing that's crazy as well about your portfolio, it's just such an interesting business as well. You have a five-star rating on every property. Like I have three Airbnbs, and I think not, nowhere close to that. And you're definitely inspiring me to really think about, not only in my Airbnbs, but also at AppSumo.com, Like, how can we do a five-star service consistently? And so how are you guys able to do that at these properties? What do you guys do?
0: Yeah, I want to give credit to our team because our team's the one who's actually bringing this to life. It's not me. So we do things like we have a 300-point checklist that we have an inspector who will go through every property after the cleaners have cleaned the property, but before the guests arrive. That makes a really big difference because there's a lot of things that don't get caught where your cleaners, they won't catch things. And so having a separate inspector coming in each time It's not something we did from day one, but it's something we've been doing for the last few years that's made a really big difference. The mentality right now, as far as like kind of a five-star experience is we will do whatever it takes. Basically for all of our guests, whatever it takes to get a five-star experience for you, that's what we'll do. So our team is instructed with that and they have autonomy to do things special for guests as well. Not every single guest, but if we know guests are arriving and they're celebrating an anniversary or a birthday or whatever, maybe we'll send a cake to the house or we'll send balloons to the house. Or if they're doing something celebrating, we'll send tickets to go golfing or we'll send a chef to the house to cook and dinner. There's different things that we will do and that's really up to our team on a case-by-case basis on what's going on, why are the guests visiting, but they have autonomy to do special things above and beyond for a guest that stay with us. If you've ever knocked on a five star what do you all do about it? Yeah, so if so overall we have a five star review across all of our properties and all the platforms and everything like that. But that just cuz we have a five star review like overall doesn't mean we never received a a four star review. I think four star review I believe is the lowest review we've ever received. I don't knock on wood. I don't think that there's any other reviews lower than four star. But if we do receive a four star, which is like super super rare, but when we do receive a four star review, Our team does like an analysis on it and we do a postmortem and basically figure out, okay, why did we get a four-star review? What happened? What could we have done to improve this guest experience? How are we going to prevent this from happening again? So it's like a pretty big thing. Like it's something that it's not just, oh, four-star review, cool. Our whole team
1: literally it's like figures out like what happened and how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And I think that's a great lesson for any business. You got me thinking about AppSumo. I think the two things that you inspired there is one, in your business, do you have a checklist of consistency? I have an Airbnb and it, sometimes they like forget spaghetti in the fridge or there's maybe we can have free beers in the fridge or free wine or whatever that is. Yeah. And so that comes down to our like 300-point checklist. What's on this checklist? Everything under the sun. But I'm guessing that gets added. It gets added over time and every property is different too. Yeah. I love the checklist idea. I think that could be applied in like making a YouTube video. It could be applied in a relationship probably. But it's really in business, you want to have a great experience. The second thing you got me thinking about is I have three Airbnbs and I have a property manager. I should comp her so for every five-star, there's a bonus. So she's incentivized to do whatever it takes to get the five-star. And when it's not five-star, like we should have a report that's like, all right, here's the things that weren't and here's what I did about it. Yeah. So I love the kind of incentivization slash closing the loop to make sure you're targeting an outcome. Absolutely. Another thing about these Airbnbs I'm curious is like, how much on average does this cost a night? So all of our properties are dynamic pricing. There's no static one price throughout
0: the year. It all depends on supply and demand, seasonality, events, holidays. The swing is substantial from 8,000 to 1,000. What do you use for the pricing? What software do you use? So there's a few different pricing softwares that are out there. We do everything manually, and we've tried every single pricing software because of the uniqueness of our properties, they always underprice our properties. And so we haven't been able to use them. So our dynamic pricing is literally somebody on our team is in charge of pricing. And on a weekly basis, we go in and we look at the calendar on every single property and we go in and we update it all. Now, you don't need to do that. Most people don't need to do that. And I would say like 98% of the properties that are on Airbnb, you could use one of the dynamic pricing softwares. If someone Googles dynamic pricing Airbnb, there's a couple of different companies out there. They're all pretty comparably priced. They all basically do the same thing with the same data. So they're good. And I would say you definitely want to do that. Yeah. Do not have static pricing. That's actually one of the worst things you can do is have static pricing with an Airbnb. You're just going to be leaving a lot of money on the table. Sometimes it makes sense to price a property two, three, four times your standard rate. And then sometimes it makes sense to provide a discount, offer a discount. It's, it's just supply and demand. And then what's your strategy
1: for sourcing the types of properties and location?
0: Yeah, so sourcing is something that I do and I enjoy. I'm not doing any of it right now just because we're not actively acquiring right now, but when we are, I have a bunch of Zillow alerts set up for certain criteria for certain markets that I'm interested in. So there's maybe 20 markets that I'd be interested in and- Can you share one market that maybe others can do? For me, things have shifted slightly to like the new properties we build are gonna be either like super unique, where like the baseball stadium type house, or they're gonna be markets that I wanna go vacation to personally. Not all of our properties I'm gonna ever get personal use from. I think on the go forward, it really have transitioned, like I wanna build these like big estate properties, and I want them to all be in places where like my family would go to. I don't have any top markets right now. I wish I could tell you like, yeah, these are the top three markets. Everyone should check out these markets. Man, I'll tell you a market I would not do today, which is actually a market we're very heavy in, is Scottsdale. Scottsdale has become very saturated, and I think that's one thing you gotta watch out for. I think that some of these markets where that market specifically, there's no caps as far as vacation rental licenses, it's unlimited, which can be good and can be bad, but that market has just seen exponential growth as far as supply, and while the demand has gone up, the demand has not kept up with supply. And so eventually, if people see you can get outsized returns in a specific market, then everybody floods to that market. And then all of a sudden it reverts, not even reverts to the mean, but it almost reverts backwards because you've increased supply by 5 or 10x and you've only increased demand by 1 or 2x. The math just doesn't make sense. So I think that if I were looking for a specific market to go into, use AirDNA, AirDNA is great. That's really the biggest piece of advice I'd have for somebody is, is it a place you'd want to go to? Use common sense. Is it a place you'd want to go to? And then AirDNA is a great tool to allow you to get some insights on the properties in those markets. And then just make sure you're doing something unique. I think that it comes down to like you have to have a unique offering. If you don't have a unique offering, you're just going to get very average returns. And for the amount of work and effort, it's just not worth it. Like you're going to be better off just putting your money in an index fund and letting it sit and ride and
1: getting mailbox money from dividends. One of my biggest problems when I travel is having like solid office space. So it'd be interesting to have like your strategy but do say, hey, all of my STOs are super office decked out. So there's a podcast room in there. The chairs are actually comfortable. There's a standing desk that goes up and down because for the most part, you're working at kitchen tables. And so having that as a strategy so that your thesis was, hey, I built this cool outdoor experience for my kids that you wanted to go to. So I was just thinking of another one. Okay, what about offices within your Airbnbs or something like that? A hundred percent. I think that there's
0: huge opportunity for people to build niche portfolios within the Airbnb space. One could be the offices like you're talking about. Another one could be like just really decked out gyms. with Like like, Sam Yeah, like a really decked out gym. So like every one of your properties has a super
1: decked out gym with every amenity under the sun. What advice do you have for people watching who are just getting started and they want to make their first million? Yeah. I think the biggest cheat code
0: that anybody out there who has not made their first million yet and who wants to make their first million and many millions above and beyond that, is to find somebody who's already successful in whatever field that you want to achieve success in and go offer to work for them for free in exchange for learning. You gotta be learning something. Their thing is, why are you gonna work for me for free? And say, I wanna learn from you. Eventually, I wanna be where you're at. And the best way, the fastest way for me to be able to get to where you are today is for me to come here and offer work for you. And however I can add value to your life and help you, if I can learn anything from you along the way, it's going to be more than worth it for me. It's more than worth any compensation you could possibly pay me.
1: But how do I get to a million? I love cheat code. I think that's a great frame. Your cheat code is go find someone who's rich or doing the things you want. Go do whatever it takes to get to work for them for free. Yep. And then how do I leverage that to get to my million?
0: If it was easy enough to tell anybody, hey, here's exactly what you need to do to go get to your first million, everybody would be a freaking millionaire. It's not like that. For people who are looking for like the blueprint of what is the A, B, C, all the way to Z blueprint of like, how do I get to 1 million? It doesn't exist because if that actually existed, like everyone would just go and do that exact formula. The world is dynamic. Things change. You got to learn along the way. And the person who you're going to learn from, if I wanted to learn from you, let's just say I wanted to learn to be a real estate developer. And that was my thing. I'm going to go out and I'm going to contact all the most successful real estate developers in my area who I could go and physically be with them and work with them, not just remotely. Some positions, it is appropriate to work remote, but this position, I'd want to actually be with them. So how can I go and essentially shadow them and help them and work with them and do whatever they need me to do? I'm going to get an education that you could not purchase anywhere else. Because it's like you're seeing the inner workings behind the scenes of a successful business or a successful person and what they're actually doing. And you and I can sit here and talk about things today and I can reminisce on like, oh yeah, I did X, Y, or Z back when we were building this and we did A, B, and C. But it's very different from actually being there on the ground right next to somebody when they're actually doing it. And I think that's the biggest thing is you need to be with someone when they're actually doing it. And help them in whatever form or fashion you can so you can just soak in as much as you can from whatever they're doing. And for the people that I know who've done that, there's not a lot of people who've taken that approach in life to try to use this cheat code that's available to literally everybody. But the ones that I do have, that I know who've done that have done extremely well. I have a friend who he did this and he started with nothing and now he's worth like $400 million. and. He's smart, but he's not like a rocket scientist or anything like that. He's just like you and I. And he went out and he sought out somebody who was much further down the career pathway than he was and far more successful financially. And when he showed up and he said, hey, I want to work for you for free. I'll do whatever you want. But the thing is, I want to learn from you. And I want to work directly with you. And I want you to give me as many difficult, hard tasks that I can solve for you as possible. I will do whatever you want. I'm going to be your best worker and you're not going to have to pay me a dime. The only thing I want in return is I want to learn from you because if one day I want to be where you're at. And the guy said no. And so he came back to him the next week and said the same thing. And he said no. And he came back to him the next week and he said the same thing. It took four tries. He got told no by the same person four different times where he went to him. He said, hey, I'm going to work for you for free. I'll do whatever you want. And the guy's like, no, sorry, kid, not interested. After the fourth try, finally the guy was like, okay, you're persistent. I'll give you a shot. Here, come help me out with X, Y, and Z. And then little did he know or what came to fruition from that was within less than a year, he was doing a deal that this guy didn't want to do. This is a too small of a deal for me, but hey, kid, you may want to do this deal. And that was his first deal. And that's what set him off on his path to success was having those inroads with the right person, being in the right place at the right time and understanding not only access to the deal, but what do you do with the deal? And having the mentor and having the guidance and now having somebody who like understands it, but it's like too small of a deal for him and he passed it along to him. So I think just proximity and putting yourself in proximity, it's all proximity. It's all people. Everything's people in business and proximity is hugely important. It's like putting yourself in the proximity and being able to learn from the people who've done what you want to do and just go and offer to work for them and show value. Don't send a message and be like, hey, can I work for you for free? I'll do whatever you want. Like, you have got to stand out because now that we're talking about this, if there's going to be a, a bunch of people will probably shoot you a message or shoot me a message and just with nothing more than like, hey, can I work for you for free? And that's not showing any real initiative. Like, you've got to go above and beyond. If you're trying to reach somebody who has any type of serious inbound, you got to go above and beyond. But in general, like you and I are probably not the best people. If there's the right person out there who you could guide and mentor and who ultimately ends up being a huge asset for you and they're able to learn a lot, it helps excel their career. That's amazing. But people are going to do this. They should go after people that are not popular. They're not famous. Go after those people. You're going to be much more likely to get a yes. If you're interested in a certain business, go find the most successful business owners in your area in that particular niche. Not the most successful person who is on a magazine or on TV or has a big YouTube following or has a massive podcast. Find the people who are more under the radar but super successful and go ask them. Those are the people who you're probably gonna be more likely to get a yes
1: from. I think that's really good advice because I think we assume the ones we see publicly are the ones we wanna talk to, which are gonna be harder to get, A story for me that comes to mind is I was renting a parking spot from a guy. He just owned a lot of property. He said in passing, and I was like, I'm renting your parking spot from you. Can I take you out for lunch wherever you want to eat? And so we go out for lunch, and that lunch led to investments that exclusively came through him that were able to have really good returns in some real estate deals. Hence, no one knows who this guy is. No one's talked to him or really asked about him. And, And so I do think it's like, go find anyone in your family, anyone in your network. It doesn't have to just be, oh, I don't know anyone rich. Someone you know knows someone successful. Even yesterday, as an example, I'm in San Diego, just as a small example. If you're interested in the food business, I went to a restaurant. It's one of the top-rated taco places in San Diego, Tetuan Taqueria, Tetuano. The owner was at the cash register. She's available. They're more available than you think if you're willing to at least ask, maybe get rejected, find referrals. But if you want to have help and guidance with one of your cheat codes, it's available. So what other cheat codes do you have? Another
0: cheat code that I have just for like business in general that I've used time and time again is looking at parallel industries and companies that are really succeeding at a much higher level in parallel industries. And how can you apply what they're doing to what you're doing? And an example I have of this is basically our most successful pay-per-click ad with RV Share was literally just ripped off of like a car rental company. And so we were testing different RV rental ads on Google pay-per-click. And I'm like, what are the big, car rental players who are way more successful, they're much larger, they're multi-billion dollar companies, what are they doing? And we basically, literally word for word, just copied every single one of the car rental pay-per-click ads, we changed the word car for RV, and then we just split tested all of them, and then one of those just like far outperformed every other ad we had ever tested previously. And that's just like one example, but I think like looking in parallels, what are parallel industries? that you can learn from, and then applying that to your industry. I think it's a really big cheat code that too many people, they focus too much on what's their competition doing. I think that's good, lots of times, to understand like, what your competition's doing. There are lots of occasions where you can learn if they're doing things better than you, but I think the bigger opportunities really come
1: when you look at parallel industries to your industry. But an example of that is R V is very parallel to a site called Airbnb. Yes. Hey, this is working in housing, Maybe I could do it with another vertical, and I've used RV Share when you didn't have payments, like back in the day. I was one of the earlier users there. What do you think the business opportunities are today? Can I start an Airbnb luxury business? What are the areas that you're like if you were starting business today? You're like, oh, these are categories I'm interested in, or well, you can make a million dollars or more doing it.
0: Yeah, I think that yes, Airbnb is not going anywhere. I don't think that there's opportunity there today. There's going to be opportunity there tomorrow. There was opportunity five years ago. I think that this is here for the long term. People are always going to want to rent a vacation home if you're traveling with a large group. Not everybody, but a lot of times it's just more optimal if you're traveling with a large group versus staying in a hotel. So that opportunity is here today. It'll always be here. I don't see it really disappearing. I think the opportunity within that space is really just comes down to building something unique, building something different, really standing out from the crowd and not just being another me too. In general, As far as like other opportunities, if I were to go back in time today, and I was 20 years old, I would be spending a lot of time trying to learn about AI, which obviously is the big craze today. But I think it's a very real thing that's going to have meaningful impacts over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And then I'm super bullish on YouTube. I am so bullish on on, on YouTube. And maybe it's just because I know a couple people who have built up a nice little business and nice life for themselves off of YouTube, but being a content creator and kind of building your own platform today around any subject matter, and it doesn't even really matter. I think that if you can become the top 1% in any topic matter, you can build
1: a great business for yourself and a great life. It doesn't matter what it is. You read a lot. What are the books that everyone should be reading specifically around business and life? There's
0: two fundamental books that kind of made a big impact on me. One was Think and Grow Rich. And I've heard that book so many times from so many people. And one of the guys I know who's built a net worth north of $100 million, literally attributes like all his success to that book. All my success is literally because of that book. I think the fundamentals of Rich Dad, Poor Dad are so important. There's so many people who they might make X hundreds of thousands of dollars or even X millions of dollars a year. But if you're still on that treadmill and you're, all your money is earned income and it's not passive income, you don't really understand what time freedom is. And I think that the fundamental teachings of like rich dad, poor dad, of letting your assets buy your liabilities and fund your lifestyle and in your liabilities is so important and so few people actually do that. And I think that if once you do that, once you have your first like passive investment that actually produces a good return it's mind-blowing. It really is. Like the first X thousands of dollars I made from a passive investment was a far bigger impact than going from 1 million to 10 million or whatever the number would be. When you were like, oh my gosh, I just made money and I didn't do anything. This is amazing. I want more of this. And so I think figuring out how to get to the point where you have more and more passive income and your passive income can fund your lifestyle and That comes down to the teachings
1: within Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki. Those are both old books. Old books are good books. Sometimes I think I'm looking for new books. I'm always looking for the next new book, but it's, what are the books that have already impacted me? Let me go and do more of those. Yeah. The other book that has made a big impact for me,
0: too, was a book called The One Thing by Gary Keller. I used to be super scatterbrained, and I would focus on multiple things at the same time, and I'm like trying to do everything under the sun. I got to narrow this down to one thing. I can't build five businesses at the same time. I got to narrow this down to one thing. And then even within the one thing, what's the most important thing within the one
1: thing? Keep narrowing that down. Love that. I think you commented before how you rate a lot of things one through 10. What is this strategy that you use and then about helping decide what to do or what you work on? Yeah.
0: So I kind of funnel things through the lens of one through 10. And if it's not nine or 10, it's an instant no. Because Otherwise, why are you doing it? Why are you investing your time into it? So I think that's just for life in general. I try to use that lens as much as I can. Sometimes I forget to. But if you can just look at anytime you have to make a decision to do something, you don't realize it in the moment. But if you're saying yes to something today, you're saying no to something else because you only have a finite amount of time. And money is unlimited. Money is absolutely unlimited, but time is not. And time is all of our only finite resource, and that is our most valuable resource that we all have. So I think just prioritizing things just from a time perspective, and if it's not a nine or 10 on a scale of one to 10, then don't do it. Because otherwise, you're spending your time, which is your most valuable resource, on something that you don't really want to be doing. What regrets do you have from your career? And was the money worth it? So, I don't really have any regrets business wise. Had a lot of failures. There's a lot of things that I've done that I wouldn't do again. But business wise specifically, I've learned a lot from everything I've done, whether it was good or bad, whether the outcome was positive or negative. I feel like I've been able to have a learning lesson from everything throughout my journey. So, I don't really have any regrets business wise. I really only have one regret in life, and that was just not being able to spend more time with my mom at the end of her life. That's really the only regret I have ever. And I tried to spend as much time with her as I could, but towards the end, she became pretty negative. And I would leave hanging out with her and i just feel really bad because there was so much negativity. And in hindsight, I wish I would have realized like none of that negativity was about me. It was about her being scared. She was scared. She didn't have much time left and she didn't know how to communicate it. And it just came out in a really negative way. I wish I could have gone back in time and realized all this negativity is not about me. She's just scared and she doesn't know how to communicate. I wish I wouldn't have taken it so personal. It wasn't like she was saying bad things to me. It was just a lot of complaining about the world in general and everything under the sun. And I really wish I could go back in time and love on her more and realize that she was just hurting and she just didn't know how to, have it come out in a positive way, but I I wish I could go back and spend more time with my mom. That's really the only regret I ever have. What's most important in life for you now? Family, family and friends. I love business. I'm a business nerd. I literally, people ask me, what do you do for fun? I'm like, listen to business podcasts or read business books. I just love business. I love dissecting businesses. I love understanding businesses. I love understanding like how they work. I love what you do is my dream job, basically meet cool people, dissect their businesses. That's awesome. But family, there's nothing else. Family is the most important thing for me.
1: And it's amazing because you're building these Airbnbs that are really family oriented. You've got jungle gyms and playgrounds and a kid's paradise. Yeah,
0: the vision behind these, would I want to take my family to these properties? Would I want to share these properties with friends where I want to share these, you know, have experiences at these properties.
1: That's how I build them out with that vision in mind. I think one thing to maybe we take for granted is how much grind and suffering there was early on and how many reps and practice we all have to get in business. I feel like my 20s were a pretty sad time for me, where I was trying a lot of things, feeling frustrated a lot of time, feeling doubted, getting fired a lot. But it was like ultimately, okay, what's the cheat code of life? And it's like, all right, how do I really enjoy this life? Building things ideally maybe you want for yourself and also doing it with the people, family, and friends that matter to you. Yeah, absolutely. I've been
0: fortunate to be able to, you know, like what we're doing now with the Airbnbs is just building something for myself and sharing it with others. And ultimately, it's a win situation all around.
1: That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Go give Mark some love on Twitter. That's at Mark Jenny, M-A-R-K-J-E-N-N-E-Y. Next, text a friend you love him. Yo, dog, let's go walk dogs together. Before you go, tweet again at me, at Noah Kagan. I love hearing your feedback or just how your days going or where you listen to this podcast. It always makes me smile. And I hope you enjoyed the episode again as much as we did making it for you. I thought Mark's story was really special and his the way he did his properties and did RV share and all these other things. Super cool. Thank you, Mark, for coming on. Also, for another plug, I don't got to plug anything right now. I want to plug you. If you want a shout out about your business, send me an email. I want to shout out your business. So if you're working on something and you want some attention, Join my email list, okdork.com, go over there, and then reply to the first email. I do get your replies, and I will be shouting out people's businesses that holler at me. Finally, a couple shout-outs to the amazing team that makes all this happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for making these podcasts sound so good. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Sasa, Nikki, Jen, Tommy, and Sylvie from the Dork team for all the magic y'all do. And finally, a shout-out to the leadership team over at AppSumo. I was reflecting how I made a lot of mistakes on sumo.com and how we kind of ruined it and I did And then I felt so lucky that there's really great, challenging people around me that have made me better leader, AppSumo, a better company, better team, better business, Papa John's. Thank you, all the leaders on the AppSumo leadership team. Have a promising day. What's your favorite day of the week? It's Friday.